Welcome to the Work Hard, Play Hard podcast. My name is Rob Murgatroyd, and I'm a former doctor turned lifestyle entrepreneur. Each week, I interview some of the best minds on the planet on the science of achievement and the art of fulfillment. Come take this journey with me. Excuses are over. It's time to live. I had a really challenging childhood, and I think a lot of people do. But it basically moved me in a direction where I felt like the only thing that I could connect with was like animals and and nature, I think. What I did that I wasn't doing before is I really looked at my budget and I started to identify like what were some of the things that I actually could do without that I could slim down and I could be more intentional with my spending. I was just being very bold in my actions and being very giving of my service to make sure that I had confidence in what I was even selling. And then that built an audience and it, and it kind of snowballed from there. Okay, before we jump into this interview, I want to invite you to be considered for my 2019 Traveling Mastermind. So go to workhardplayhardmastermind.com and fill out the application and we'll jump on a call to see if you're a great fit. This year, we'll be in Boston doing lots of cool things like training with Tom Brady's trainer, Alex Guerrero. In the middle of the year, we'll be heading to Monaco doing things like vintage car rides through the French Riviera. And then we're going to wrap the year in Florence, Italy, doing things like truffle hunting and hot air ballooning over Florence. Look, Life is all about fulfillment, and I really try and walk the walk. So if you are looking to be part of our tribe of 28 high-achieving entrepreneurs that are in the six- and seven-figure range, fill out your application at workhardplayhardmastermind.com to be considered. So think of the mastermind as having two parts. The first is the trip itself. And the second part is what goes on over the four days within the mastermind. Our group of 28 entrepreneurs will help you brainstorm and accelerate what you want to achieve in 2019. And we'll do that through a variety of different exercises, brainstorming activities, breakout sessions, goal setting sessions, you know the drill. So go to workhardplayhardmastermind.com, fill out an application, and we'll jump on a call to see if you're a fit. All right, let's jump into today's episode. What's up, everybody? This is Rob Murgatroyd, and welcome to another episode of the Work Hard, Play Hard show. This episode features Adrian Dorison. You can find her on Instagram and elsewhere at Adrian Dorison. So I wanted to have Adrian on the show because she has a entirely different approach to creating more fulfillment in your life. And I want to give you guys so many different ways that you can get more fulfillment. And I love the way she's doing it. She's doing it through helping you automate your business so that it runs like clockwork. I had a lot of fun with this interview. I learned a ton. You are gonna love it. Adrian, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be here. I really do want to say yo, Adrian. Now that now that you put that in my head. It's inevitable. Just it feels really good. So you, yeah, just do it. All right. So listen, I am super pumped to get into this conversation with you because we're talking about people's lives here. I mean, we're talking about how Potentially, they can get out of being chained to their businesses and create some real freedom and real fulfillment in their lives. So I'm super excited to get into this and thanks for making the time. It's my pleasure. 
You know, these are the important conversations to spread this message. And I think it's really cool when we can just have conversations. So I love the style of this show. Awesome. Okay. So the show will be in three parts. The first part is going to be about the science of achievement, where we're going to help people create or think about creating a business that runs like clockwork. And then we're going to talk a little bit about fulfillment and maybe what you do personally to make sure that that side of your life is addressed. And then we're going to wrap up with some rapid fire questions. Cool? Cool. All right. So I think a good place to start would be polar bears. (laughs) (laughs) That's a great place to start. (laughs) You got your bachelor degree from the University of Florida Florida in wildlife ecology and conservation. And you thought that you were going to save polar bears. What were the steps that sort of like led you into that world? You know, I've always just been wildlife and animal obsessed. (laughs) And like from my early childhood days. And so then when I went to university, I thought, oh, I'm going to become a veterinarian. But I really only wanted to become a veterinarian because I thought that was the only way to work with animals. And then once I started like digging around a little deeper, I realized, actually, I don't really want to be like in a room putting animals to sleep. I just didn't think I could emotionally handle it. I wanted to do more of conservation work. Uh, I have a big heart for sustainability and conservation. And so I looked into it and there was a wildlife ecology and conservation degree. And I was like, oh, I think that's actually what I want to do. So I was dual majoring because I had just kind of like picked business when I got into school because who knows what else you pick. I feel like it's so young to like pick your trajectory for life. (laughs) So I was just in business and then I started doing the wildlife ecology and conservation. It was my first love. It's still my my love and my passion. And yeah, I really wanted to work primarily actually with polar bears. <laughs> I was like, they need help. <laughs> you know what's so interesting about this? Like, it's so fascinating to me because I wonder how much of this is nature and how much of this is nurture. Like, were you were you raised around polar bears? I mean, where like you know, did any of this come from some place in your life where, you know, your dad exposed you to this sort of world or is it just like innate? I definitely wasn't like raised around polar bears. I do remember having this like one stuffed animal that was, that I was obsessed with and it was a polar bear. <laughs> so that was like from very early childhood. But I think that I, I had a really challenging childhood and I think a lot of people do, but it basically moved me in a direction where I felt like the only thing that I could connect with was like animals and and nature, I think. Mm. It was like where I felt most loved and uh, related to, which is kind of strange. But I think that is actually... So, you know, there is probably a little bit of nature and nurture in there because my first dog that I had, like I thought he... I thought I got my eyes from him. Like I literally thought that I was part him, you know, like people would be like, Oh, wow. You were like communing with stuffed animals. Yes. No, this one was a real dog, but. (laughs) Oh, this was okay. I thought we were still in the stuffed animals. This was, so you actually, I thought that I got my, my brown eyes. I thought that I got them from breezy, our dog. I would tell people. Oh my God. And that was like at 16 years old, right? (laughs) Totally. All right. So in 2012, you moved on and you got your master's and you went to uh, the University of Georgia where I am. I live in Atlanta. And 
Yeah, ultimately, uh, from there, you wound up working for international paper in the polar bear department. So In the polar bear, yes, like, exactly. What, I, by the way, I'm just going to kill polar bears. I promise I won't keep doing it. <laughs> what happens... Like, where did the polar bears go? How did you wind up? And polar bears, by the way, we're using as a metaphor for all of the things, yeah. you know, from I really ducks was to... obsessed with polar bears. It was, it was yeah. the thing I, I wanted. It's a very, like, large, you know, appealing animal. I was really into They're predator cute. prey. They're action. just cute. Yeah. Let's be honest. They're cute. I, I think they'll rip your face off, but they're cute. Well, they're the... There's only two animals on the planet that will actively hunt and kill humans. They're one of them. So, you know, not... Oh, you're so kidding cute. me. <laughs> oh, no. They'll see a human and they're like, that's prey. This giant stuffed panda bear looking thing will eat you? It'll find they, you? So there's only two animals on the planet that will say, oh, that's a human. I recognize it as a human or, you know, human species. I'm actually interested in killing it now. And that's polar bears and crocodiles. Croc, hang on, I just think about this for a second. We just took a left turn. So crocodiles, croc. So a crocodile will look and go, "Oh, human. that's a human. I want to eat him. That looks good." Yeah. Wow. We can end the show right here. That's really freaking cool. <laughs> but I was well, still like intern- obsessed with polar bears. Yeah, it's <laughs> like even yeah, apparently very not nice. I still wanted to pet them and save them, but. You know, somebody else taught me on the podcast once, I'm assuming it's correct. You could probably correct me if I'm wrong, but I think giraffes don't have vocal cords. And so uh, the guy said, next time you hear nothing coming, look out, it might be a giraffe. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? That is interesting. I can't confirm or deny because All right, I'm so we'll have to Google. positive on that one. Yeah, we have to Google that one. That would be interesting. So how did you wind up in international paper from this world of animals? Yeah, so I, in between my undergraduate degree and my master's degree, I actually worked in South Carolina at an environmental education center. So I was teaching for about two years. I was teaching all things environment, conservation um, to kids ages kindergarten all the way to high school. So it was really interesting. I feel like I got a ton of life training in that space, but I knew that it wasn't like a career for me. Like I literally lived on site. I was making like $265 a week. It was not a long-term career. So I knew that I wanted to go to back back to grad school, but I just didn't know what for specifically. So that's why I was kind of working and waiting. I went back to grad school and ended up getting a degree in forestry and natural resources and economics. So like the the economic side of natural resources. So I was interested in the business and human dimension side of wildlife, ecology, conservation, and how it interplays with humans and sustainability, as well as like markets that are driven by things like timber. So that's what I went to grad school for. But then, and I still thought at that time, like throughout that whole graduate degree, I still thought I'm going to end up working for like a nonprofit or a government organization. I just assumed I'd be making $35,000 a year tops. That's kind of like what you make in the wildlife uh, world, even with a master's. And that was just... I was looking for jobs in that space, but it, it's, it's not a huge uh, job market, right? So the jobs are limited. And usually, especially in those government jobs, people stay there for like 30 years. So it's like, there's not a ton of opportunity. So 
there was some job openings at some private companies, one of those being International Paper. And I had been recommended for one of those jobs. I went and interviewed. I got the job. I started making way more money. Like I was making double what I thought I would ever make in my life starting out with a private company. And so I was like, okay, this is interesting. I don't know if this is what I want to do forever, but I'm going to go work for this forestry company. So I was more of in originally a forestry role. But once I got into that role, started to do internal training because um, they needed a lot more of the business and project management side of what we did. So it it became like a supply chain logistics role, even though there was forestry elements involved. So I still had to know a lot about the land and the timber use and markets of timber for that role. But essentially, it evolved into I had to learn and develop skills, which they paid for me to do internally about the entire supply chain and how do we remove waste from this supply chain. And that meant cost savings as well as um, just all the different types of waste because it's a really long supply chain from the tree in the ground all the way to turning it into a piece of paper that leaves the Oh my God, I'm such a knucklehead. I never put together paper and forestry. Like I just thought it come from, I just thought it comes from Office Depot. Holy shit! I did not even. It it, it, you were probably seventy five percent into that before I actually drew that line. Oh my god, I'm such an idiot. Okay, cool. Now I got it. I'm I'm actually probably sure that a lot of people don't understand like how someone would get from a forestry degree to working for a paper company, right? But this is the I completely did not. I completely did not. I thought you went world, right? Yeah, I thought you went like, eh, I can't do, it. I can't, I can't make it with the ducks. I'm going off into uh, into working corporate world. I did not draw that line. Okay, and I'm gonna edit. I'm gonna edit all of that out. Okay, perfect. I'm gonna. You, you're gonna see how smart I sound at the end of this. This perfect. is amazing. Okay, cool. All right, I got it. All right. So, what came with that master's degree was a bunch of student loan debt. Oh can yeah. You, can you kind of take us back to that time of? making the minimum student loan payments and that feeling of living paycheck to paycheck and kind of what was going through your mind at that time. Yeah, so I w- I got, you know, funding to go to graduate school, but with the agreement that I had for my research, I wasn't allowed to have a separate job outside of that research assistantship. So it wasn't paying for all of my living expenses or all of my education. And so I ended up between um, my undergraduate, which I had some loans from undergraduate, and then my graduate degree, I had about $50,000 of student loans. And I, you know, I got this job where I was finally making some money. It was the first time in my life that I felt like I had enough money to buy the almond butter that I wanted <laughs> at the grocery store. Mm-hmm. And so I was mm-hmm. buying Big it. Treat. Yeah, I was yep. like, I'm going to buy the $6 almond butter because I've felt like I have lived on nothing for so long. I am um, going to let my hair down and dive oh, into that almond butter. That's right. Screw I'm it gonna, all. Screw it all. And I'm also going to get the gym membership that I want. And, you know, because I was making this corporate income and essentially I was still paying my loans, I was like, oh, I'm paying them, but I'm paying the minimum. And so right. then year I'll be 400 after year, by the time it's over. Yeah. Yeah, year after year, I was like, why isn't this going away? Right? Like, it was just kind of growing, actually. (laughs) Like, I was not making a dent in it, yet it still felt 
Like every month I was at zero, I was still stretched. It still felt like I wasn't able to make a big payment on it. Um, but I was literally at the point where it was going to take me 28 years to pay off if I, if I did it at that rate. And so I was like, okay, this is something I'm just going to, you know, I'm going to pass down to my kids someday. And, and I felt like that's how my peers were kind of looking at theirs. And even like parents of some of my friends were like, they were, you know, turning 50 and they're like, yeah, I just paid off my loans. And I was like, oh, okay, that's just how we do things. That's just normal. And then it came to a point where I met my now husband and he didn't have any student loan debt. And he was just like, really crushing it as it related to his financial uh, situation. And he introduced me to a guy named Dave Ramsey, not actually introduced me, just introduced me in terms of you and Dave hanging out, doing martinis, going to the strip, going to the strip clubs, throwing dollar bills. (laughs) Yeah. right. (laughs) I got it. I got it. Talking about (laughs) just talking about the snowball effect. Yeah. Yeah, I got it. So I started listening to Dave's show and realizing it was really helpful for me. And this is why it's, I think, helpful and important for me to share my story around these things because I started hearing other people that were just like me or in situations that were worse than me and they were doing it. They were paying off their debt and they were doing it really fast and they were living you know, more financially free. And so to have a connection even just virtually or you know through a radio show that I was like oh this could be possible for me like I could maybe do this faster so I went through Dave's course and I paid off my student loan debt that $50,000 I had an original plan of paying it off in 1 year with just my corporate income I was still in my corporate job at the time so if I really got serious I could pay it off in 1 year so I went from a 28 year repayment plan to a 1 year repayment plan But then when I started my now business, which was like a side hustle at the time, I started that side hustle basically because of Dave, because it kind of got me creatively thinking about how can I earn more money quicker and like what's next for me. Um, I ended up paying that $50,000 off in six months. So super. Okay. So let's stop. Let's stop there. Let's go into this because I have, I I obviously know who he is because he kicks my ass in the podcasting world every (laughs) week regularly. He's amazing. I also know that he has a tribe of loyal followers that like, you know, is bigger than the Grateful Dead. I mean, it's insane. Yeah. Um, But I don't really know exactly how he does it. And I hear these stories of people that are making like no progress at all, trying to get out of student loan debt and credit card debt and stuff like that. And all of a sudden, you know, it's like in one year, I got out of $20 billion. Like how, like if you kind of just like encapsulate the course, Mm -hmm. what did you do? that most people are not doing or what were you not doing that you then started to do? Yeah. So he has like a baby step system, which is super simple. And basically the steps that I was doing to pay off the debt are like number steps number one and two. So it's like, first, what I did that I wasn't doing before is I really looked at my budget and I started to identify like what were some of the things that I actually could do without that I could slim down and I could be more intentional with my spending, right? Because I was just spending like $20 here or $40 there at Target or because I had technically air quotes had the money, um, but it wasn't moving me forward in terms of paying off that debt. So also like scaling back my gym memberships, like maybe not buying the almond butter, right? Like really, I did move all of my expenses back towards more of like survival mode because I felt like if I 
if I cut them back for the short term, then I could get out of this debt and then live this life where I didn't owe anyone anything. And so then I could choose how I wanted to spend it more freely after that. And so it never felt like sacrifice to me, but I definitely cut back on my expenses a lot. And then I started putting as much as humanly possible towards that student debt. And what I did was his snowball you know, effect where you actually... You don't worry about the interest rates um, because most people start paying off the highest interest rate first. But what it does is it doesn't give you any small wins. So he uses the, the mindset of momentum to help you get small wins so that you'll keep going and pay off this debt. So instead of paying off the highest interest, you, you pay off the, the smallest loan first. So inside... And you're like, of, high, you're like high-fiving yourself yes. all the time. And I had a visual on my, um, on my kitchen, on my refrigerator. It was like a dry erase board that I drew this like basically like scale of how much debt I had. And then I would fill up how much I was like paying off each week. And it was like growing, you know, each week, then I could see the progress and it was growing and growing and growing. And like, I knew once I filled that cup or whatever it was, like got to the top of it, that it was done. So that was also like helpful in terms of building that momentum. But yeah, I paid, you know, inside of my student loan, there was probably six different loans. That's usually how student loans work. And so I just started with the smallest one, even though the interest rate wasn't necessarily... And with student loans, all the interest rates were relatively the same. But I started with the smallest one, paid that off, and then snowballed, put all of the money that I was putting on the smallest one, put that towards the next one. And then it just cycled, went really fast from there. I also like... I sold some things. Like I sold a TV, I sold things. Like it was just very important Because you were like all in. You're like all in. I'm getting done with this. It was so important that I did it as fast as I possibly could. And I do not regret any bit of that. (laughs) No, it's amazing. I had 150,000 in student loans. I'm a chiropractor by trade. And um, the first year I got out, it was 150,000. And that was 25 years ago. So you can imagine like it freaked me out. So I paid it in one year because I just went nuts. nuts like right? I took, yeah. I lived like I lived as a student, and I said I am not changing anything. It's I'm going to continue ramen, but every dollar I make is going to go to this. And I worked, you know, from like I don't know seven a.m. to eight o'clock at night, uh, five six nights a week until it was paid. And that feeling's incredible. So what I want to ask you about is what did it feel like for you? On May 31st, 2015, when you turned in your letter of resignation because you were able to, you know, say, I've got some, I got, uh, I, I don't have this payment anymore. I don't have to work here. Yeah, that's funny because I actually was going to continue working there for a little bit. <laughs> um, and I actually got called out publicly because I was, I had this side business at the time and it wasn't like a non-compete. I wasn't doing anything illegal in terms of my job. I was writing a blog and one of my coworkers anonymously turned in my blog to my uh, VP. And I basically got a phone call from him one day unexpectedly asking me if you know he he saw this blog it was put on his desk and he was wondering if that was my letter of resignation and i was like no i wrote that blog 4 months ago <laughs> so i was like well what is your was there something in the blog that you wrote about like referencing leaving the company or what was it? That- no, I wrote about the idea of like having a side business and that it was actually, uh, you know, fueling me and, and that I really, you know, was uh, paying off this debt and that it helped me to kind of like live some of my 
values and passions and the side business more. But my performance was never lacking at the job, right? Like no one ever even knew for the most part. I wasn't parading it around necessarily. But that was kind of the... By that point, I had just finished paying off my debt. And I think it was like a gift from the universe because I think I would have stayed in that job a lot longer if, if it was up to me to go and be like, okay, it's time. So really, it came down to... I had just finished paying off the debt, so I was able to you know, have... And, I, and my side business was, was making mo- me more money than my corporate job was at that point. So I was in a position where I could leave. But I, Isn't I wasn't this so going funny. <laughs> but you know, like I'm I'm sitting here and I'm like, this is so crazy. You got a you got a boss that sees a blog. You're obviously doing well. You're obviously excited. Instead of coming in, you know, saying, Hey, sit down. I read your blog. Freaking awesome, girl. Go get him. Yeah. You know what I mean? You're doing a great job here. I want nothing but the best for you. But it becomes this like corporate self-interested thing. Yeah. So crazy, but you know, like you said, um, sometimes these things happen. Yeah, it was um, exactly, exactly the way they're supposed to. Yeah, I mean, they basically gave me an ultimatum, and so that's how my resignation came in. And I don't think that they thought I was going to make that decision, and so I think that they were very shocked. <laughs> um, but I went in the next day, turned, you know, let them know that I had made a decision. It was the hard, like one of the hardest conversations that I feel like I've ever had. And um, they asked me to stay for another two months. I thought they were going to like walk me out that day with my stuff in my hand. Yeah, here's your box. Like, yeah, I done. thought I was like gone. And they're like, oh, can you help us? <laughs> I was like, I'm not staying for two extra months. I was like, so I did. I wanted to like leave on good terms. I stayed an additional six weeks to be there to, to train and wrap up some big projects. And then I, and then I left. And it was, it was good and it was scary and it was freeing. But... Well, let's talk, let's talk about that point right there. So in that blogging world, within a year, you were making triple what you were making at the corporate go- job. Mm-hmm. What, what do you, what do you attribute that to? Uh, naivety. <laughs> How do you say that word? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Is that correct? Uh, let's, let's go French. You want to go French? Yeah. I th- we'll, we'll do naivete. Naivete. It's like, it's like Jeanette, but naivete. I like that better. Naivete. Okay, good. I would say Naivete. like I picked a word for myself in 2015, which was bold. And I just took a lot of bold actions. I, I put myself out there. I was sharing that debt freedom story. I was you know, using the skills and expertise that I had from the corporate world, but I was applying it to small business owners. That was my goal was, okay, I, I, I kind of have this expertise around um, you know, helping the company create cost savings and get more results with less input in terms of resources. Could I do this for a small business? Because I think that I would actually prefer to work directly with the people that care more. (laughs) And I did a lot of work for free. I would say that that was a big fuel in the beginning was I, I needed to make sure that I could actually get people results. And I think that there's a lot of people out there unwilling to do that right now. And they didn't see they they see me now having this like really successful company and and making, you know, a good income. And and I was making a good income even back then. But the six months prior to that, I was doing a lot of work for free. I was making sure I could get results. I was I was emailing my dad, my brother, my sorority sisters saying, Do you know anyone that would get on a call with me that I could serve in this way? 
So just like really, I put it on my personal Facebook page, even when I still had the job, right? So I was just being very bold in my actions and being very giving of my service to make sure that I had confidence in what I was even selling. And then that built an audience and it, and it you know, kind of snowballed from there. I love this. I think I have you figured it. I think I've analyzed you. You ready? Yeah. You are heart-centered and systems-based. A hundred percent. I figured you out. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, let's nailed drop it. the microphone. I nailed it. You're a heart-centered system-based gal. Yep. Okay. So listen, you started this podcast called The School of Mastery in uh, 2018. And then you decided- 2015. 2015. Okay. And then in 2018, if I got the date right here, you decided to go all in on a project with your business partner and your husband, which is where you are now, which is called Run Like Clockwork. And the goal of that project is to help entrepreneurs create a business that's automated and runs itself. Why, if I got that right, why did you decide to do this? Yeah, so this is essentially the work that I've been doing in my like my previous business. Adrian is basically my personal brand, Adrian Dorison, and, and I did consulting there. Um, it's basically the work that I've been doing. It's all about how do we create operational efficiency for small business owners. And I decided to go all in on this partnership with Mike and this this new brand, Run Like Clockwork. Um, Mike was writing the book Clockwork and he was looking for someone who had lean Six Sigma and operational efficiency expertise, but in the small business. All right, hold space. on, hold on. I got, I got to interrupt you. Yes. I got to interrupt you because I don't know what that means. What's Six Sigma? So Lean Six Sigma is the kind of the corporate skill set and tool belt that I used um, when I was in the corporate world. But it's all about process improvement and operational efficiency, right? So it's how do we create more results for less or more results for the same in terms of resources. So it's really looking at the removal of waste as it relates to a system or an organization. And so Lean and Six Sigma is the continuous uh, improvement toolkit that a lot of large corporations use. And that's what I was trained in at the, at the corporation that I was working for. And so when I was starting my, my side business, my now business... I was trying to figure out how do we apply these same concepts, but to a small business owner who doesn't have millions, billions of, of dollars of resources or mass resources. So the, the tools had to be adjusted. They had to be uh, you know, transitioned and, and really finessed. And so that was kind of the toolkit that I was creating in my own business. But it's all kind of from the same lens. Okay, guys. Do you know why it's called Six Sigma? Yeah, there's um, a mathematical equation that no one really wants to hear, but it's, <laughs> it's statistical analysis, okay. right? So it's a lot of statistics and data-driven you know, tools that we're using to make decisions, which is what we do with our clients that run like clockwork. Like you need, as a business owner, we need to know the numbers. We need to be making data-driven decisions. We just do that in a little bit of a different way than maybe a, we're not going to run a data, which is a statistical analysis program we would use in corporate. It's a little different, you know? 
So it's interesting. So I'm assuming that I, you know, I want everything, everything in life leads to the next, but I'm wondering how much of Dave Ramsey's that, that story that you told us about getting out of debt mm-hmm. um, and looking at the numbers and seeing how these things work and, you know, your affinity for sort of numbers. I'm, I'm wondering if, you know, this was something that was kind of trained into you when you were like, oh, wow, you know, I got a, I got a system here. This is a good system. I'm, I'm able to get out of debt. What if I applied this system to business and help people in that way. Was there kind of a connection there? I'm sure that like the application of doing the the personal financial stuff for myself, I mean it created a whole new mindset and level of freedom for me and it created a whole new level of empowerment and confidence to know my numbers and I know that that's true for our business owners too when they start looking at their numbers and really understanding their numbers and not just their financials but really all of the the business metrics that we're looking at so that they can make really confident data-driven decisions. It just gives you a whole another level of yeah, empowerment, confidence. And and I think that there's a lot of business owners, even at the, you know, multi-six figure, six figure, seven figure level that that are are not really intimate with their numbers because they're scared of them. They don't. They don't want to see what what they think it might say, or they just are, you know, overwhelmed with the day to day, and so they put it off. But truly, uh, the data informed decisions are what help drive you forward faster because we can make true decisions instead of just out of thin air ones. So for sure, that had an influence on me. So. All right. You're already stepping into the world that I want to go into. And this is, you know, there's no way that we're going to be able to cover in this episode what you do. But I'd like to ask you a couple of questions that are high level, Mm -hmm. just to kind of talk a little bit about psychology and then maybe drill down from there just a bit. So you mentioned mindset. So let's deal with that. What's one of the first things that the entrepreneur needs to get clear in their head when they're starting to create a business that runs like clockwork. And what you just said about numbers is so freaking true. I don't know what it is, but it's almost like you're embarrassed Mm -hmm. by how much money you make. Even if you're making a lot of freaking money, it's almost like you have this embarrassment of what you make. And then you, you know, you hold your hands up over your eyes when it comes to how much the business is spending and you're like, I'm running this through the business. I'm running that through the business. I don't really understand. Like, how much am I really making? Like, and there's this mental mess. Mm-hmm. So, like, how do you start with that? With a drink. Um, <laughs> I told them, I'm like, whatever you need to do to get ready to, to look at this is fine, right? But, like, we have to look at it because we can't keep operating in this head in the sand type of way if we want to be able to eliminate waste. That's what we're looking for. And I think that the mindset or the emotion that's typically coming through, and I can say this because it was true for me, both in my personal and it's been true for me at times in my business, is we have shame around our money. And shame not necessarily of like the true numbers, but shame because we feel we should have done better. We feel that we're smart and we're like, how could I do that? Right? Like, how could I not be looking? How could I spend this much on certain things that maybe didn't give me a return? Or 
I'm shameful that, or I'm embarrassed that I don't even know where it's going. So I'm just going to stop looking and go make more of it and completely ignore this other side where that's not true financial uh, freedom and responsibility. You know, I think that there's a lot of conversation around like the abundance mindset and just being you know, feeling like you can always earn more. And that's the way to look at things. And that is one side of it. But the true freedom and and the true financial abundance mindset also comes from understanding uh, what your financial responsibility is and, you know, looking at where where things are going and being confident and not being afraid of those numbers. Like that's abundance is being able to look at those things and feeling confident that you can earn more if you want to. But I just really believe in good stewardship of your resources as the mindset of abundance. And so I think that it comes from a place of shame, typically at first, and we continue to just stay in that pattern, because it's very scary. And so the first thing that we have to do is get our clients comfortable and put them into a safe space where they feel like this is going to be non-judgment. This is going to be safe. This is going to be the first step towards a lot more growth, uh, both personally and from a professional business side, because we can't improve things if we don't understand the baseline of where where we are. And so we have to have the data. And every business owner has data and information. And most business owners just aren't looking at it with enough depth. Yeah, like right now, I'm not getting on the scale because I don't want to see what Christmas did to me. And that's not good, mm, right? Yeah. So I understand, like we can't turn a blind eye. So if you had, if you could pick, this is going to be a, a really difficult question, but if you could pick only one that's more important, would it be cutting expenses or earning more money? And the the, the lens that I'm looking at this through is... When I think about cutting expenses, at some point you hit a wall Mm -hmm. where you're like, I can't cut anymore. Like, I I mean, I could, but I don't want to live like Mm -hmm. this. Like, I want the freaking almond butter. Do you know what I mean? So I don't want to keep cutting. And, you know, I just want to, I just want to make more money. So, like, I know that you need to keep your eyes on both Mm -hmm. because at some point you're Michael Jackson and you're, you know, you're making $20 million and you're spending 21. Like, I get it. So I get that. But like, if you had to kind of pick one, could you pick one or is, or there's, is that not a fair question? Well, I think that it has a caveat, right? Like I totally want our, our clients to earn more. And I know that they actually have the potential to earn a lot more if they get the operation side running really well. Usually there's some bottlenecks and some small tweaks that we have to make operationally that will unblock their ability to, to grow and create more capacity for themselves. And I want that for them. That's part of it. And that's possible for them. But I don't want them feeling like they have to earn more and more and more just to kind of keep up, right? Like Because that can become cyclical and it can have just as bad of a feeling as cutting back if you are only like being like, oh, I need to earn more. Or, oh yeah, I can earn more. So I'll spend this and then I'll earn more so I can you know, I can still spend this and, and it becomes this game of having to work more or continue to do more and more and more to only keep up with what you're spending just because you have this belief that you have 
an abundance mindset. So I believe that you know you should you should have desires and you should be able to fulfill them, but that also your fulfillment doesn't come from that. So I think that there has to be a disconnect there between like your finances and and what you're trying to fill. <laughs> but it, it is an unfair question, I think, because I would say earn it's more, both. but not with the assumption that you're spending more at the same rate, because then what's the point, you know? Well, this is why I bring it up, because I think every every small business owner is always in this situation where they're like, you know, which which way do I go? Do I expand the company? Do I get bigger? You know, do I, you know, do I use the word bold and I'm going to, you know, up it up and increase, increase the income? Or do I just start firing people and cutting expenses because my payroll is too high? You know, one of the... Well, in that sense, one I of would the say grow. <laughs> okay, cool. Cool, cool, cool. Don't I love that. I love that. people because you don't want to pay people for what they do, right? Like, because those people are what gets you out of the day-to-day, you know, operation in terms of like what we talk about. And, and a lot of the business owners right now that we work with, like they're not spending time on the thing that's most valuable or the thing that they got into the business in like why they started this thing in the first place. And so actually spending money on team and people and building the systems is what creates more space for you and it will help you grow the company. And I think that also depends on individuals' visions, right? Like some people want to have this massive vision for what they're doing in the world and you should fulfill that. And other people have a vision of keeping their company really small and they want to be boutique and that's fine too. But I would never want you to stay small just for fear that you can't manage people or that you don't have the money to do it. Like don't fulfill a dream or like don't suffocate your dream based on fear of like what you can and can't handle because that doesn't have to be your truth. But in that case, I would say, yeah, you need to grow and bring on other people to do the things and pay them for it um, that you don't really need to be doing. Yeah, let's talk about that. In your experience with the kind of clients that you're working with, do most of them want to continue working in the business or would they prefer to have the business run like clockwork without them physically being there and allowed, you know, in a franchise sort of way, allow this thing to function without them? I think there's actually a really strong mix because a lot of them want the day-to-day operation to run without them, but they still want to, you know, do the thing that they get the most, you know, fulfillment from or they are the most valuable there, right? So for example, even my business partner, Mike McCallowitz, like he he loves the doing side of writing. Like he wants to keep writing. He doesn't want to like just go live on an island and never, you know, touch the business again. Um, but he doesn't want to be involved in the day-to-day operation of it. So I would say our, our clients are a mix of that where they want to be involved, but only in the thing that they are really passionate about and that they do best. And so we can get them to that point. And then there are others who really want to create a business that is uh, what I would say, quote unquote, sellable, where they maybe have another project in mind, another business. They're true entrepreneurs where they're like, I want to go start this other business. I have so many ideas for the next business. And I don't really need any involvement in this business. I'm happy for it to just you know, continue to run without me. We've got a great team and system in place now. And maybe they have a desire to start another business or to even sell the business that they have currently. And so they come to us to basically move that business to a point where it is sellable. 
Um, because typically, if you're like completely basket woven into the into the day to day operation of the business, and there's no system of how you would transition that to a new owner, it's not sellable. So this is interesting. I made a decision. I just sold this week my chiropractic Congrats. practice after 25 years. So this is thanks. So this is um, this is super timely. Yeah. And I knew that to be able to sell this thing, I was going to get have to get out of the day-to-day operation. So over the last two years, I hired a new doc. Yeah. I created um, checklists and I hired a, a, a mid-level manager Because you need, actually, need actually, to like a very everything. unique buyer for that business too. They have to be certified. They have to be you know, a, a doctor. A lot of businesses don't even need that much. So it's a very unique sell exactly. that you had to do. It was not easy to do at all. Um, and w- the person who wound up buying it, interestingly enough, was a uh, another chiropractor that owns eight offices here in Georgia. And he said, this is easy for me to absorb because you had this thing running like clockwork without you having to be there. So I can actually open one more and I don't, you know, I don't have to begin this from the beginning. I just have to plug my system on top of your yeah. system. But the reason why I'm bringing this up is I hit a point. Okay, so let me let me back up. I did an interview with a guy. His name is Casper Craven. And he decided he was having some trouble in his relationship. And him and his wife decided that this crazy idea that they were going to take their kids and they were going to travel for two years in the sailboat around the world. And they had to like figure out how to do that. And obviously, one of the things they had to do was automate the business so that it functioned while they were at sea. Mm-hmm. And it taught him this you know, incredible level of, uh, I guess, systemic thinking to have this thing function without him having to be there. And, you know, he said to me, if you're going to hire somebody, you know, let them, let them run this thing. But I didn't listen to him. And I kept sticking my nose Mm -hmm. into the business. And the manager I hired to do this, you know, she sat down with me and she said, look, you hired me to do this, but you're micromanaging Mm -hmm. me. So, you know, like either let me do this or let me go. And the moment I pulled back from the business and I allowed her to do it, but what I want to talk about is the torture that I felt because she was making mistakes and I wanted to come in, like grab her by the shoulders and move her and go, no, this is how it's done. And it was like, it was so much easier for me after 20 years of doing this to just do it myself. But I knew that that was not the right thing Uh to do. So how do you address that? It's like the number one challenge, right? So it's like, this is a little bit like parenting in that we have to let our team members make mistakes because usually if we look back on our own lives or even the way that we're trying to swoop in, typically how we have learned things is through our own mistakes or lessons or through some situation that we've personally experienced that has given us this knowledge and and it's you know it's sometimes beneficial to be able to to mentor our team members and guide them but truly we need to give them the space to flex those muscles make some mistakes they will learn but i i always advise people like help them make mistakes in low stakes environments first so that you start to get more comfortable with them making those mistakes and learning from them and trusting them more. And I think there's, you know, part of this is making sure that you have at least some of your core immutable laws of business in place or your brand 
guidelines, how you would operate um, in certain you know, scenarios so that you can make sure these aren't super high stakes mistakes that um, cost you the company. But it is an exercise of letting them grow into those roles. And truly, that's where you're going to get the best team members is if you let them do that. Because usually you're hiring A players, right? And A players, they want to do the critical thinking. They want to be an autonomous uh, employee. They want to add value to the company. And if we don't give them the space to do that then they're going to leave anyways, right? Like like she told you, she said, if you don't let me, if you don't stop micromanaging me, I'm going to leave, right? Because I, yeah, I need to have this space. I'm, I am, you hired me because I am good at what I do. Does that mean I'm perfect? No, but for some reason, we expect all of our team members to be perfect, even though we realize we're not, right? So... <laughs> so true. <laughs> so we have to... That is so true. Why did you make a mistake? Because I never make I've one. I've never made one, right? And so like, Ever. we have a philosophy, Ever. like one of our core mottos um, that I've kind of lived by ever since I left corporate is we're not creating oxygen. And I tell this to my team. <laughs> I tell this to myself. When they make mistakes, when I make mistakes, when... When there's just that certain energy where we feel where like I can tell people are like on edge, I'm like, guys, we're not creating oxygen, right? Like, and I try to pass that on to our clients as well because I can just feel sometimes the anxiety and the stress that not just the business owners have, but that they're then transitioning onto their team members, right? Like everyone feels like we're on edge. We feel like everything is the most important thing, everything is urgent, everything has to happen now everyone's stressed out, they're burnt out. And it's no wonder because we're treating our companies and the day-to-day operations as if we're creating oxygen. Now, that's not to say I don't value what we're doing. And I don't... like. I do believe and I do understand that this is you know, your livelihood and it's important. But just to take that oxygen energy out, I think is really important because it allows people to have that safe space to, yes make some mistakes and, and learn from them. So if they are going to make mistakes, make sure you have a feedback loop for how not just they are learning from them, but how the rest of the team can actually get value and learn from that mistake too. So that's one way to at least feel the mistake was uh, of service to, to the team, to the company, to that individual without... you know. And part of this is also just going to be a a leadership and personal growth exercise for the business owner in terms of letting go, right? So there's probably some past (laughs) emotional trauma in terms of control and relinquishing control and feeling like you need to do everything yourself, otherwise it's not going to get done right, that we need to grow through. And I'm not saying it'll be easy, but it will absolutely be you know, worth it in, in the long haul. Because like you said, until you stepped away and said, you know what, I really need to like let her grow and operate and make these decisions with some, some guardrails, of course, but uh, she's not going to grow. And yes, that's going to be uncomfortable for me. And this is what we usually see happen is, is as soon as a business owner starts to remove themselves from the day-to-day they get uncomfortable and they start to reinsert themselves in ways that is completely unnecessary 
But I believe this is true because a lot of times as entrepreneurs and as small business owners, the way that we are uh, getting our own self-worth is through our work ethic, our business. Um, we would describe ourselves as hardworking. We would describe ourselves as like really committed to the company and those types of things. And so if we take that away, what we're essentially doing is removing your ability to get self-worth through it. And that can be very uncomfortable. Mm. So we have to, to basically do some personal growth around where you're going to rebuild that personal relationship with yourself um, and the self-worth that you are currently deriving only from the business. You know, this is so interesting because I didn't experience any of the last part of what you just said. And I was trying to figure out why I was like, well, I do consider myself hardworking and why am I not identifying? I wasn't identifying with it because I had another project in mind that I wanted to leave yeah. the, the practice to yeah. work on. So I was getting that fulfilled in another yeah. place. Yeah. Okay. So now, and I, I look, I realize that, you know, we are touching the surface on these categories, but let's say that the business runs like clockwork. We get the guy or the gal out of the practice or out of the business, but there's still this kind of like connection Mm -hmm. to it. So how do you suggest for the owners that really don't want to be involved in the day-to-day operation of the business? And they, you know, they just want to be involved in super, super high level decisions, how do you get them out of the, you know, the, the never ending, you know, intra office, Slack messages, texting, phone calls, like how do you, how do you get them out, out? Yeah. So part of this is, you know, helping them understand that they're part of the problem because usually they're the ones like reinserting themselves and they've trained their team to come and ask them questions for everything that that is needed. And we have to, it's a process of like retraining the owner on how to respond to certain things and how to give their team members the tools to make decisions on their own. And there's a reason your team members aren't making decisions on their own. And usually it's because they don't have either permission, they don't have the information that they need to make a decision, or they don't have the confidence to make a decision. So it's up to us to train them to get those things and transition that over. But then once we've like really started to get to a point where that's, you know, running like clockwork and they're not being pulled into the to the day-to-day or they're not reinserting themselves into the day-to-day, like how to sustain that, I think is also communication with your team and and helping the team understand the value of the CEO or of that, you know, entrepreneur not being involved in the day to day because um, most of the time we think that um, we don't need to tell our team this or we think that, oh, the team will resent me if I am no longer doing the day to day work. So we end up like not communicating with them that this is part of the vision and that this is actually going to be in greater service of the vision of the company, like you pulling yourself out of the day-to-day. It seems self-serving in the beginning, um, but what it actually is, is of most service to the company, which is of service to the team and to the clients and the people that we serve in terms of... Especially if we have a big mission or vision that uh, we believe in is hopefully going to serve humanity as, as a whole by doing our work. If we can do that work at a greater level, um, the only way to do that at a greater level is to pull that individual 
uh, out from, from being, you know, everything being dependent on them. What this also does is allow the team to grow. And as a small business owner, you need <laughs> to help your team understand what their growth trajectory is because otherwise they see themselves there for maybe one, two years and they don't see a growth path. And you have to help create that for them. And by communicating that, it's going to help them not want to pull you in because they understand this is a growth opportunity for them too. So that's a big piece of it that most people miss is they forget to communicate back to the team how important this is and how it serves them as well. You know, there's so many moving parts to this, right? There's there's honesty. You got to face that. There's heart where you got to have the vision. There's personal development. I got to get over myself, you know, and I got to make sure I'm feeling fulfilled. There's letting go and let somebody else do it. I mean, there's a lot here and I see how now I'm drawing the polar bear, polar bear line. This is all starting to come together for me. All right, so let's move into the second part of the show, which is the art of fulfillment. And I'd like to talk about some things maybe that you do in your life to kind of help improve areas outside of running like clockwork mm-hmm. business, like clockwork. Yeah. Like, it's a weird, weird thing to say, but you know <laughs> yeah. what I meant. <laughs> Can you explain maybe to people why you started taking self-defense classes and maybe given, give people some examples of how it helped you in your life? Oh, you did some digging there. It's like self-defense. I took a self-defense class last year with a friend. Um, he was a friend I met at our CrossFit gym and he ran these self-defense classes and he was actually, he invited me. He was like, Adrian, you need to come to this. <laughs> I was like, okay. <laughs> I had never done anything like that, but I travel alone a lot. And... I've always had this like, and this is probably weird for the podcast, but like, I've always had this like deep seated fear of being raped. And he was Mm -hmm. like, yeah, you need to come to this class. So I went to that class and I found a lot of value in just feeling it was, you know, confidence and just awareness and all the things that I realized I was not even aware of that I was doing you know, headphones in while I was walking around in strange places or on a run by myself, headphones in. Like these are just like, this the first step to not getting (laughs) attacked, right? And I was just oblivious um, to those things. And it was just really important for me to feel like I could defend myself if I needed to. And so that was kind of like a fun, yet also personal mission to make sure that that was something that I did for myself since I was travel. I was travel a lot alone. My husband usually doesn't travel with me. So I think it made him feel more comfortable too. Like, oh yeah, you're going to be in all these places by yourself. And I'm very comfortable by myself, which was almost to a fault. I almost got too comfortable. Right. Where you were just like disconnected from everything that was going on around you. Yeah. And it was like, I always think like, I always, I'm very, it's really interesting. Like I always am very trusting of strangers. Like I trust, that you know, people just at face value I always give people the benefit of the doubt. And my husband is like very maybe the opposite. He's always like, <laughs> he's maybe, like maybe not maybe not that way. Maybe not that way. And he's like, oh my god, how are you like just not even realizing that you know maybe you should cross the street and not walk past a you know a group of four strange men? And I'm like, I don't know. It, it could be nice men, right? Like. We don't know. We don't we know. We don't know. Maybe they're nice. Yeah, it's interesting. Naivete pops back up again, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, it's true. So, 
really interesting. Okay. So what does a typical Saturday morning look like in your world? So I wake up naturally. I've just recently, I guess over the past six months, transitioned to like alarm-free because I read this book about sleep and I became obsessed. Mm, you got to get the whoop. I'm going to tell you about that later. The whoop. Oh, it's called yeah. the whoop. Yeah. I, I did a whole podcast on it, so we don't have to go into it now, okay. but I'm going to tell you, so it's going to change your life. All right. So I was, you know, I always pr- like prioritized fitness, but I then realized, oh, wow, sleep is actually more important. So I'm alarm free, but I usually wake up at like 5.30 or 6 on a Saturday morning just because I'm a crazy person and prefer to go to sleep at the same time, even on Friday night. <laughs> go to bed at like 9. Actually, it's super smart. Yeah. Really super smart. <laughs> go to bed at like 9, wake up at 5.30, snuggle my dogs for a little bit. Two dogs, one who gets way more airtime than the other. And then I work out. I work out in the morning and then... I will usually go for like a long walk. Um, and that's when I listen to like an audiobook or a podcast or, you know, if I'm really feeling, feeling good, I'll listen to some Howard Stern. (laughs) Isn't he the best? The best of all. Probably the best interviewer in the world. There's nobody better than him. It's, it's just lights me up, you know? So that's a personal, like guilty pleasure is my Howard Stern. <laughs> Love him. There's a reason why that man makes 50 million a year. Yeah. If you could spend one month anywhere in the world, where would it be and why? Um, Africa. More specifically, South Africa in the Kruger National Park. Um, it's something I've already done, but it's like my greatest love is I just feel very at home in Africa. I feel... That I re- get to like reconnect with my my first love and passion, wildlife, and it's just the ultimate in terms of nature and wildlife ecology and conservation, and just it's just majestic. Like it's the only thing that like I, brings me to tears just by the beauty of it is being out in the bush. So I don't know if you've ever gone on safari, but. I have. Actually, I did in... uh, I was in Africa last year. I did Cape Town. I did not make it to Kruger Mm -hmm. because we did... We went for New Year's Eve and it was Mm -hmm. a big New Year's Eve Cape Town thing, but there were safaris that we did. It was a little Disney World as compared to Kruger, but it was really cool. Yeah. So that's where I'd spend a month. It's part of my personal goal for myself over the next two years to be able to spend between four and six weeks in Africa at least once a year. So... That's mm, going to be happening. Regular thing for you. Regular. Love it. Yeah, I want it to be regular. If you could go to only one restaurant before you die, oh, where would your last meal be? I'm about to die, right? So just really blow yeah, it's it out, over. I feel. This is your last meal. This is all you got. <laughs> Probably like a really great steakhouse. Is there one in particular? I mean, we have one called Burns down here. And uh-huh. yeah, it's amazing. Amazing? Yeah, it's good. What is the one thing that's rocking your world that has nothing to do with work? Well, Miley Cyrus is rocking my world right now. Miley? Why Miley? I just love her. I, I know. feel like she is like really coming into her self right now. And I think I feel a 
synchronicity in that, that I feel like she's been around for a while, but she's really starting to like write music that is so true to her. And it's just really good music and it's really unique music and it's really different. And I just love how herself she is. Like she's unapologetic about her interests and her style and her like feminine masculine dynamic is very interesting right now to me. And she will stick that tongue out and rock that booty and just not care. And just not care. And it's just, yeah. And she's just of talent as well. You know, like I think that her voice is actually one of the best out there right now. And it is. Did you hear Malibu? Her song Malibu? One of my favorites. I, so I, freaking good. So good. And her new song with Mark Ronson is amazing. It has this like... Oh, I haven't heard oh, it. Oh, you got to go listen after this because it has I'll like do this, it. this twang to it that's like a little bit country yet a little bit yeah, it's good. Like every everything she's putting out right now is really good. And she was just on Howard the other day again. And so I, I just like, yeah, I'm just really loving her. And she's also like a big, generous giver. Um, she has her own foundation. She's just, yeah, I, think she, I just love everything she puts out. So I'm kind of obsessed. She's so freaking awesome. I just absolutely love her. You know, a lot of people talk about their morning routine. That's the hot topic these days. Yeah. But I'm kind of interested in your evening routine wine down routine. What's that look like? Glass of wine? I don't really drink that much. So no wine. My, my biological mother was a alcoholic for many, 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 many years. And I think I still have a little bit of like fear for myself that like, I would never want to get that way. Um, so I don't really drink that much. I do. I'm not like a teetotaler or anything. Like I do drink sometimes, but it's not part of my evening. I've never like drank privately, like just at home. I know that some people are like, oh, a glass of wine to like chill. Maybe once I have kids, that'll change, but not now. Oh, it'll change. (laughs) It's, it's gonna, it's gonna, actually, I'm sending you a case right now. So I, I promise you it's changing. Evening routine is I usually like wind down my work, shut it down. And then I like to go for a, another like long walk outside. Um, sometimes with headphones, sometimes with my dogs, sometimes um, with my husband. And then I usually eat dinner. I usually eat the same thing for dinner every night because I'm... A crazy person and creature of habit. Creature of habit for sure. I like to eat the same things. <laughs> and predictability is safe, right? Yeah, it just makes me like there's a little bit of OCD in there, I'm sure, but it just yeah, you know, it's make it's what makes me feel good. And it would make my feel my body feel good, I think, which is what is most important. Like I've learned over the years what my body needs and does not need. And I've just been more committed to that, I think, over the past five years of like okay, that doesn't feel good. You hate the way you feel after you do that. So why would you do that? So just being really true to that for the, major, you know, for the majority of, of my time. So I eat and then we usually take the dogs for their evening walk. And then I usually settle down and we watch like an episode of Netflix and then, I'll, and then we go to bed at like 8.30 or 9 and I'll read, read for a little bit in bed and go to sleep. That's it. Is Netflix amazing or what? It's so good. I mean, right now... I mean, like, just, I can't... We just watched something stop. on A&E, which was the Clinton Affair. I'm not sure if you've seen that, but... I watched the whole thing. Good. The whole thing. It's <laughs> un- like, I, like I can't... I can't. 
I could literally sit. I can, I've never been a couch potato, yeah. but Netflix is making me into a guy that cannot stop watching freaking. <laughs> it's unbelievable. And I couldn't figure this out. I was talking to somebody. I just interviewed a guy who's got a Netflix show. Um, he was the creator of Everybody Loves Raymond. Oh, wow. He's got a new... Uh, uh, a new tr- uh, show. Uh, it's called Somebody Feed Phil, which is kind of like a takeoff and everybody loves Raymond and he travels around the world. And anyway, so we were talking about it and I was like, how are they making all of these shows? Like nonstop, like wh- where is this coming yeah. from? He said they got, they're getting billions that it's coming in because the stock is doing so well yeah. that they're getting from private whatever mm-hmm. uh, in the world of, you know, because stock offerings and they're just taking billions of dollars and they're just throwing it at everybody to make shows yeah. and they're making insane shows. Yeah, they are. And it's, I try to, I try to limit myself to one episode a night though. That's my like, okay, because I'll keep going, you know? Oh, because you won't stop. Yeah. yeah you won't stop. You, you absolutely won't stop, but that's, that's what we do too. All right. So we're going to wrap up with a rapid fire round of questions. Answer as quickly or as slowly as you'd like. It's basically a first thing that comes to mind round. All right. What would your friends say is one of your superpowers? Consistency. What's one of the things you're afraid of right now? Being seen. Being seen. Can you unpack that a little? Yeah. I think that I'm just going through um, another growth shift in terms of like, like I'm having like my own Miley Cyrus moment where I feel like I'm needing to step out more and really be seen in terms of who I really am, like the opinions I really have. And there's a lot of fear around Mm. people not liking me because, you know, of certain things I'm going to say. And I feel like it's just this, like I've been seen at a certain level to get to this point. And now I feel like I'm learning what I learned at the very beginning of my business and and it's coming through again, right? So I feel like, you know, people that are just getting started or, you know, just starting their businesses or, you know, we think that we're going to learn all these different lessons, but sometimes it's the same lesson, just at a different scale or a different capacity, you know? So I feel like I'm relearning this lesson of like, okay this moving through the sphere of being seen and being seen by more people and what that means. And can you truly be yourself? And will people like you? Like I'm going through all of that right now. Mm, That's such, this is such a good conversation because it's so easy to do. Somebody asked me the other day um, when I was being interviewed, do you know who Lewis House is? Yes. Okay. So I was talking with Lewis and he asked me, he said, why are you so afraid of success? And I remember being pissed off when he asked me that question. Mm -hmm. And I knew that there was something to that. So these questions, you know, when you're starting to like identify this, it's kind of like the lights get turned on, right? And you start, like you start having this awareness, like you don't have it figured out yet, but you're starting, like you turn the lights on in the kitchen, the cockroaches start running. Like that's kind of like, you know what I mean? It's like the beginning. Yeah. Um, Okay. What do people never ask you, but you wish they did? I guess like the deeper reason of like why I do what I do is a big one for me that I feel is just underlying and maybe doesn't get seen as much. Yeah. They're like, just automate my business and tell me what to do as opposed to, let me, let me, yeah. Yeah. Let me explain why, why we're doing this and why why I'm doing this. Yeah. Yeah. What book have you reread or if it's audio, re-listened to the most? I actually really love to like master really good books and I read them again and again and again and again and again until I've truly <laughs> got it. 
um, in terms of implementation. And so this one is, is relative for me and I've done it with so many right now. I'm currently doing it with, uh, you are a badass at making money by Jen Sincero, which is a great book. um, Yeah, she's great to move through some mindset stuff. So that's like top of my, I mean, I've definitely reread clockwork so many times because from like manuscript to <laughs> manuscript revisions to yeah, yeah, yeah. reading the book, that's a little bit different because when it's, you know, your own project, you obviously have to read it a lot. Yeah, for sure. What is the one thing that you own and probably should throw out, but you never will? <laughs> I'm laughing because my husband always jokes about like, old sweatpants that I have that are just so comfortable now. And he's like, (laughs) but you look like you like blew holes through them. Like, why are we still wearing those? And you're like, I know. I'm like, I I I just broke them in after 10 years. Right. But it's like all I can think of right now. There's probably a lot of things. (laughs) If you had to give a TED Talk on nothing that you're known for, or let's say nothing that you speak about, and it can really be on anything that you like to do or have a passion for, what would it be? It would be about giving back, like generosity to like boomerang the feelings that you are craving for yourself. Love it. What a beautiful way to end. One last question. We're going to change things up a little bit. What one question would you like to ask me? I would like to ask you, what was most valuable about this episode for you? (sighs) Two things. You and I share a crazy OCD, predictability, systemic thinking vibe. What we don't share, and I am working on in myself is the other side of you, which is embracing the giving, heart-centered, world-centered, kind-centered vibe that I know is inside of me, but I don't cultivate. And you put that forward in a beautiful way I almost wanted to say unapologetic, but that didn't feel right. It's just more natural, I think, mm-hmm. for you to do. And it's not for me. I have to, I have to really work. I mean, I, I'm, this is embarrassing, but I have to really work at focusing on the giving charitable side because I've got this sort of like entrepreneur mind and I just want to like knock everything down and succeed. Mm-hmm. And so my focus is there. But as I get older, I'm 52 now, I start, I'm starting to really recognize that there's this place in my life now that I'm not, uh, that I'm not considering. And mm-hmm. now that as of this week, the practice has gone you know, completely, yeah. um, I've got much more time. And that's an area of my life that I want to consider. So you've taught me how you can be systems minded and you know like everything we talked about with clockwork and also be heart centered mm-hmm. so that's 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 like the gut reaction i have there well thank you that's a great reflection and because it's valuable for you i'm excited to see what you do with it especially with that extra time right because i think that everyone has something 
values driven, like you have to link it to your values, right? So otherwise you won't do it. So thinking about what your value, highest values are and how could you, you know, lean towards those to find something in terms of generosity and, and charitable causes that you're passionate about. Because I just, I think that everyone has something that they care enough to do something about. They're just not all going to be the same. So also like removing the shame and judge self-judgment about like what you want it to be or what others might think it should be. Like you just need to explore like what actually lights you up or do you care about enough to do something about. I am going to take that uh, to heart. Huh? How you like that? I like it. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Do you have... Do you have any final words, suggestions, or an ask for the people that are listening? Oh, just maybe to um, think about the same question that I asked you, because I think it's really great to listen to podcasts like this, but truly like what was most valuable for you and really reflect on that and take take a moment to think about that and then to put it into action because I'm such an action-oriented person that it like pains my heart to think if we would spend you know, all this time talking and someone's spending all this time listening to us, but then they don't actually do anything with it. It's not, it's not actually in service of them. So I would love for them to, you know, I'd love for you all to reflect on like, what was most valuable? And then what are you going to do with it? Love it. Now I know why everybody told me I need to meet you. (laughs) Thanks, Rob. Because you're awesome. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. This was really fun. And yeah, I'm glad we're connected. All right. Thanks for listening. If you love this episode and you know someone that needs some help in either stepping up their work hard game or their play hard game, it would mean the world to me if you shared this podcast with them to help me get this movement out there. So if you like what you heard, head on over to iTunes, take 30 seconds and leave me a five-star review and I will be forever grateful. So until the next episode, excuses are over. It's time to live.